Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage and the second part of an interview with author and historian Vodin England about her latest book that looks at the multiple communities that made Hong Kong. Vodin discusses with me what it means to be cosmopolitan and how she defines the word Eurasian, the communities that were at the helm of some of Hong Kong's key businesses for decades and some continue to be. If you missed last week's programme, then do have a catch up on the online podcast where Vodin introduced her book, Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong, and also explained how the majority of early Eurasians in Hong Kong were the result of unions, often between businessmen or sailors and others of a variety of nationalities, and what were termed protected women, women who would be given a residence and often turned to the sex industry as a way to overcome poverty, but who ensured that their particularly sons in those days would get the education that they had never had. These women, they knew they weren't educated. They made damn sure that their children were. And from there, that's why they became leaders of Hong Kong society, the offspring of these unions. In last week's programme, Vodine also described some of the colourful characters that made up the fabric of Hong Kong in its first century as a British colony. There's this famous English character, well, some would even dispute whether he's English, Daniel Caldwell, hugely controversial character in early Hong Kong. In this programme, Vodine talks to me about the multiple communities that make up Hong Kong. The issue of being Eurasian has often been a complicated one, partly because people would often look to disguise their roots, something that makes it also tricky for the researcher to track their names. But in 1929, some of the big business Eurasians took ownership of their heritage. In 1929, a bunch of the leading Eurasian men of this colony got together and formed something called the Welfare League. And this involved them saying, we are Eurasian. We have now, to a large extent, made it. We're wealthy. We're settled. We're happy with who we are. But there are members of our community who are not wealthy and who need support. So it's a charitable foundation. And how many within these diverse communities saw and see themselves first and foremost as Hong Kongers and were willing to risk their lives for their home. These, these were people who had no idea how it was going to turn out. And I'm not saying they were just loyal to the British, because I don't necessarily think that was what it was. They were loyal to Hong Kong. In Fortune's Bazaar, you've got all of these multiple ethnicities, people coming in from all of these different areas, but you've also got these Eurasians, which are a product mm. of these liaisons, these long-term protected women partnerships, mm. where they're, they're having, you know, four or five children. Mm. This will be years long. And then sometimes it's the case where the man then goes off and has what, what would be a, a legitimate marriage and, and he's bringing in a male order bride from England or it's it's another Westerner who happens to be in Hong Kong. The protected woman would to a certain extent get paid off but there may be interest into the children. So that's one way that the Eurasian community was created in, in Hong Kong. But is that the only type of Eurasian? No, not at all. I had great fun finding all these bars, which are sort of sailors' bars, you know, and with wonderful names, you know, the land we live in or, you know, of course, the empire. And they would advertise their wares, you know, saying that they had all sorts of drinks available with honey. You know, honey becomes a euphemism for 
sexual services. But a lot of these foreign sailors, and I don't just mean Western guys, a lot of the original sailing community was Indian, hence you have Lascar, Roe, Indians or Malays or, you know, from... What we forget about Hong Kong is that it came out of this whole already long, centuries-long established trading world of from the Middle East, from the Levant originally, through the Middle East to South and Southeast Asia. So these are the peoples who are actually literally making trade possible in and out of Hong Kong, crewing the ships. And of course, the men who are in charge of finding the crew for the ships, there's several early, very important figures in Hong Kong who, again, lived in the same neighborhood, which is why the first mosque in Hong Kong is on Shelley Street, because this is where the first, they were called a gout sarang, which is a term, a Malay term, meaning the person, well, the labor contractor, basically, the man who got the staff you needed for your ships or your warehouses or whatever, usually for your ships. So they would be Muslim. They would be hiring all kinds of other men from the South and Southeast Asian trading world who would also come here. But what I love is that these initial Muslim businessmen, they also have Chinese partners. They also make families. And then, of course, Western sailors start turning up. And they also meet not necessarily Chinese women, maybe Malay women, maybe Indian women. And they also really form serious relationships. And weirdly, I know my, my father, the Reverend, would be happy to hear me say so, but in fact, the church was one of the early sources of support for a lot of these mixed families. There were certain churches that were entirely open to entirely mixed relationships and who were more than happy to marry these people from completely diverse and different worlds. I mean, of course, they're looking to sort of expand their footprint, but there wasn't any of this sniffy business, oh, no, you you know, you shouldn't be dealing with these sort of natives or anything like that. No. I mean, you might have thought it would be the case even at St. John's, but no, that's where Daniel Caldwell married his Chinese wife, in the cathedral, you know, with the bishop. I mean, he'd already married her in a Chinese ceremony years earlier and had children. And, and the cathedral literally sanctified such relationships. So that's something we also forget now. We think, oh, everything yeah. was so sort of racist and so divided and so awful. Well, I'm sure that happened. Of course it did <laughs> anywhere. But a lot of other things happened. So a lot of different kinds of families. But there's a wider problem. And, of course, when I started on this book, I, I suffered over this for months. You know, how do we define the word Eurasian? There is this literal sense in which, you know, one of the relationship partners is from one part of the world and one is from another. It might actually be a Chinese gentleman, Lai Ho Kai, who then, when he's studying in England brings an English wife back, and hence you have the Alice Nethersole Hospital, which is, of course, another story, but never mind. Um, so is it literally, it's, it's somebody, often the woman, from an Asian country plus a man from elsewhere, or, you know, what's the definition? You won't be surprised to hear that lots of people have different definitions. Yeah. So I had to kind of work out what mine was. And I, I say loosely to friends, well, basically, it's anyone I find interesting. But <laughs> of course, <laughs> that's not good enough for a book. Of course, it's important that you're talking about mixing cultures, possibly, maybe faiths, maybe what some people call race, which we know doesn't exist. But it's that notion of mixing. Now, the conventional description is, as you say, uh, probably usually a Chinese woman and a Western man. That we know. I've also found it really important to include in this early story of Hong Kong the fact that very many of the people who were literally first 
fresh off the first boats were Portuguese from Macau. They were probably already mixed, Chinese-Portuguese blood, if you want to talk in that sense. But anyway, culture. And of course, Parsis were among the very first to buy land in Hong Kong at the first land auction. If you weren't Scottish buying land, you were probably Parsi. It's extremely important, that community. And of course, these very early Jewish traders' names I'd never heard of until I got into this. So the Parsis were coming in from? Largely from Bombay. They are, of course, a much earlier trading diaspora. Um, They're Zoroastrians. They worship the sun. They originate in Persia. They had to leave a large part of the community moved to Bombay. There is, again, divergence over how exactly you define a Parsi. The conventional description is the child of two Parsis. But of course, if you have a community that's been living in India for generations, of course it has intermarried. So it's partly Persian-Indian community, but there is a very specific faith that holds them together and brings them to their temple in Happy Valley Mm -hmm. to this day. And so I was thinking, well, how do I manage to call all these people Eurasians? You know, I'm supposed to be doing a history of Eurasians, but I really, I must include all these other people. So I latched onto this notion, well, geographical, Eurasia. So then, indeed, I can bring in my favourite Armenian, your favourite Armenian. <laughs> so that's Paul Chater, or Sir Kachik Paul Chater. Yes, so you're talking about the whole landmass. And, of course, it sounds like a stretch at first until you think about it. You're talking about this, the ancient Silk Road. This is one huge landmass. Of course these people came over in different formations at different times over the centuries. I mean, you've got to take a whole sort of very long view of all of this. So that's how my definition evolved of Eurasians. Now, here's a good example. I was horrified the other day at lunch to be told by a descendant of Ho Kom Tong that it was completely wrong to call Ho Kom Tong a Eurasian. And I thought, oh, no, I think I've done that. (laughs) Now... The point about Ho Kom Tong, he's a half-brother of Sir Robert Ho Tung, who, when people think about Eurasians, he's the most famous, mm. he's certainly the richest. And he was, so he was a comprador? He was a comprador for Jardines. He made his own personal fortune. He quite actively, deliberately set about creating a dynasty and included even half-brothers such as Ho Kom Tong, in that wider dynasty. And I think we mentioned him, Ho Tung, as the offspring of a protected woman and a disappearing Dutch Jewish father. So Sir Robert Ho Tung is someone who started out very conscious of the fact that if he was going to get ahead, he was going to have to do it himself. His mother made sure he went through school which is incredibly brilliant. He was also a very smart guy. He got very rich. He created this wider clan so that Ho Kom Tong, although they shared the same Chinese mother, has a different father, a Chinese father. So if you want to be absolutely literal, Ho Kom Tong, if you want to talk in terms of blood, is Chinese. However, he was brought up in this very rich and vibrant Eurasian world. He's part of the Ho Tung dynasty. And in fact, in many ways, he's, he's so much more fun. He's quite a character. <laughs> Uh, you know, there was one house called the Small House, you know, which was home. Well, in the beginning, when I started the book, I thought it was sort of 13 concubines. And then the number kept changing as we... So <laughs> it's, it's important not to be yeah. too definitive about these things. And then his his first wife was in what was was called the Large House. But, of course, she was the only one in it. And he was a brilliant... They're often all fantastic personalities. They're just great stories. They're smart. And they often are very active in society and especially in philanthropy. They become wealthy and they spread it around. Mm. 
So just looking up Ho Kom Tong in Fortune's Bazaar, and here on page 131, uh, under Vodine's index, it does say 131 to 132 Ho Kom Tong complex private life of. And so we've got here that uh, alongside his half-brother, Sir Robert Ho Tong, he would follow in his footsteps through Central School and Jardines into private business, largely in Hong Kong's opium monopoly. But he quite outstripped Ho Tung, however, with the complexity of his private life. So all the talk of multiple concubines and mistresses in the big house and the, and the small house. But she goes on to say, Ho Kom Tong had style, wit and even flamboyance. One of his favourite ways to raise money was to sponsor and then take leading roles in Chinese theatre performances. Funds raised went to flood victims in China the London School of Tropical Medicine, public dispensaries, widows and orphans, of soldiers, of the Russo-Japanese and Boer Wars, Lord Kitchener's Memorial Fund, myriad schools and hospitals, and the Helena May Institute. Most of all, Ho got ahead on audacity. He and his brother, Ho Fook, were among the owners of a cotton and yarn company, Sang Chong Fat, one story is that in 1900, during the turbulent times, when the United States took the Philippines from Spain, the U.S. Navy blockaded the seaports, causing the price of sugar to plummet in Cebu and demand for it everywhere else to skyrocket. Ho Kom Tong decided to run the blockade, took a fleet of ships to Cebu, somehow got through and loaded up with cheap sugar. Then he heard that in the Boxer Rebellion, foreign troops had entered Tianjin and Beijing and desperately wanted sugar. So Ho changed course, sailed north to Tianjin, where he sold the sugar at a huge profit, then loaded his ships with more than 3,000 refugees out of Beijing, thus converting a blockade-busting sugar run into a charitable endeavour. So I have it right in the book that Ho Kom Tong has a different father and then later on I'm calling him a leading Eurasian and I've since been allowed to do this by members of the family because indeed he was buried in the Eurasian cemetery so to some extent either he or his descendants identified with the Eurasian world and how this came about importantly for me in the book was, you know, here's another and you might think of it as a sort of incredibly British or English institution, you know, the, the Helena May Institute for Women and Children, as it was founded back during World War One, named after the wife of the then governor, Helena May, at a time when Western women, if they were going to visit Hong Kong, there was nowhere respectable for single white women to stay. They were not part, obviously, of this heaving world up the hills unless they were also working women. So respectable women, they, they couldn't just check into a hotel as, as you and I would now. So the Institute for Women was a, a very respectable institution for Western women to stay in the beginning. It's not now, of course, it's marvellous. It's, it's a, a very cosmopolitan crowd of all sorts of, of women. And even men are allowed to join as associates. However, at that time, so during World War I, two men decided to actually cough up the money to help found the Helena May for Western women. So what I find fascinating is that one of them is our Ho Kom Tong. You know, why would he care? And the other one is Alice Kaduri. So from, you know, this great Baghdadi Jewish dynasty, which is still extremely important and alive and well in Hong Kong of 
today. And so you have two, in my wider definition, men of Eurasia, uh, cosmopolitan men, thinking, oh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll help. You, we can see that, you know, when Western women come here, it's a bit complicated, so let's help set this thing up. I mean, it wouldn't have happened without them. I mean, you don't get that sort of money. Then I get into this whole thing about what does this word cosmopolitan mean? I mean, it's just as complicated as Eurasian. You can define it in any way you like. And, of course, it's been massively overused and it sort of means everything and nothing. But these men at that time were... I would say, cosmopolitan personalities where they saw they were absolutely part of their own community. You know, you, when you're in this sort of Eurasian world, you're pretty obsessed with that. You're busy with being Eurasian and you're probably marrying other Eurasians and you're getting dim sum at Christmas before you go to mass or, you know, all that. that that's Eurasian, but it's also cosmopolitan. You're part of your community, but you're also part of a wider thing. It was the same with many of the Jews. I mean, the, the Kaduris are just wonderful for what they've done for the education of girls and women especially, and all over the world, not just here. So to me, there's that sort of wider mindset, which I think is really important, and that that also helped make Hong Kong what it was. I'm talking with Vodi in England about her book, Fortune's Bizarre, The Making of Hong Kong. You have all of these various communities, some who are coming in from Bombay, uh, other parts of the world, and also these communities that built absolutely in Hong Kong themselves, and uh, that becomes this Eurasian community, the different sorts of Eurasian communities, and some of our biggest businessmen over the years. The, the other discussion, of course, is whether people say that they're Eurasian or not, of course, over the years. Mm. There seems to be, you know, whether they're going to identify more with um, Chinese culture or uh, Western in the wider sense, or if they're Indian or Muslim or etc., or whether they're actually saying that they're of mixed blood. Of course, a lot of people get very tangled in this, and it's it's really not helped by the way people change their names. And you know, it's incredibly complicated. I think you know there has been this sense of shame about you know what did great grandmother have to do to survive. I would turn that around and say, be proud of those women. They had very little choice. And they made a whole new life for themselves. And they created families that are, are really impressive and interesting. So I think we should get to a point where we're really sort of reclaiming these women as really uh, something to be proud of, something to, to shout from the hilltops, you know, like Hansu Yin did, you know, we are Eurasian. We are, you know, the most important, most beautiful people. I mean, of course, we're all beautiful, but it, there's been too much shame on that front. Yes. But interestingly, and of course, it was always easier for the men, they did all get together in 1929. And so... You've come out of World War One. There have been now nationalist revolutions, not only in China, but, you know, after World War One, the whole sort of collapse of these great big umbrella empires, the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians and so on, the rise of the nation state. You get this rise of nationalism. It's not a great atmosphere if you are Eurasian of whatever kind. But in 1929, a bunch of the leading Eurasian men of this colony got together and formed something called the Welfare. League. And this involved them saying, we are Eurasian. We have now to a large extent made it. We're wealthy. We're settled. We're happy with who we are. 
But there are members of our community who are not wealthy and who need support, so it's a charitable foundation. And they got together. What I find interesting, and there are descendants here, of course, of Hotung, Codewell, of all sorts of other names who, you know, there's a guy called Anderson. You think, well, that's a pretty normal English name. And, of course, he's Eurasian. <laughs> so this is 1929, the foundation of this Welfare League. And uh, what did your friend have to say? Well, I wish I had known him. I wish he had been a friend. But Carl Anderson said at this first meeting, um, he's really making a, a sort of clarion call to Eurasians to, mm. to stand up and say, you know, this is who we are. Let's do something with it and let's sort of hang together. Now, this becomes important. But anyway, at this moment, he is saying, gentlemen, it has been said of us that we can have no unity. And he says this is an insult that has to be wiped out. Our detractors don't realise that, after all, there is no gulf between a Chan and a Smith amongst us, and that underlying the superficial differences in names and outlook, the spirit of kinships and brotherhood burns brightly. We Eurasians, being born into this world, belong to it. We claim no privileges, but we demand our rights for which we must contest to the last ditch. With the blood of old China mixed with that of Europe in us, we show the world that this fusion, to put it no higher, is not detrimental to good citizenship. Now, so that is a kind of coming out of the closet, if you like, of a certain slice of the Eurasian elite. Now, what I find then really interesting is, so war is coming, World War II. Nobody exactly knows that it's coming. They don't know that it's going to last for years and years. They don't know that Hong Kong's going to be occupied by the Japanese. And they don't know who's going to win. I think this is really crucial. We always look back at the war, we know who won, so we feel fine about it or whatever. But at the time, these people, partly those Eurasians in the Welfare League, but also a wider Eurasian community, and in particular, the Portuguese. Now, I call them Portuguese because they call themselves Portuguese. Others might call them Macanese. We're talking about, of course, not only the mixture between Chinese and Portuguese, but, of course, other mixtures. There are fascinating stories of a woman who I met in her 80s in England identifying as Portuguese. Her Malaysian Chinese family looked down on the Portuguese side which is an interesting approach. And then, of course, the Portuguese side looked down on the, mm -hmm. on the Malaysian Chinese. <laughs> you, know, you have all these schisms, except, of course, suddenly the war comes and it was a much better thing to be Portuguese because Portugal was neutral. And if you could claim a Portuguese passport, then, of course, you, you could claim neutrality. You could get to Macau. You didn't need to go to camp for the British. You didn't need to be identified with either side. So you have this mix of communities. The Japanese turn up, they, they win the war, obviously, they occupy Hong Kong, and then you have incredibly, I mean, gruesome choices of loyalties for each, I mean, we have no idea how, how we would react under those sets of pressures, of choices, you know. You're, it's, it's not even being under Vichy. This, this was not a pleasant occupation. This was heavy. It was, there was nothing to eat. There was torture. There were killings. And so you get families such as, for example, the Rutanjis. Now, they're originally Parsi. They are quite special for the extent to which their philanthropy has always focused on Hong Kong. Quite a few Parsis would send money back to Bombay. There were huge institutions there for that kind of wealth return and so on. But some of the Parsis of Hong Kong have focused their wealth and interest and influence 
purely on Hong Kong. This is their home, and it has been since the 1840s. So Ratanjis are one of my favourites. Literally, father and son Ratanji, when the war came along, they smuggled money and food into Stanley Camp, where their British friends were interned, to help them get the medicines they need, help them stay alive with enough food. They were arrested. They were tortured. And meanwhile, Mrs Ratanji, sitting here still on Duddle Street, was running a sort of refuge for anybody who needed a roof over their head, and she was eking out her store of canned food and all the rest of it during the war, and she would sell a bit of jewellery when she had to. And You know, these, these were people who had no idea how it was going to turn out, and I'm not saying they were just loyal to the British, because I don't necessarily think that was what it was. They were loyal to Hong Kong. They had some kind of belief in their community, which was both their Parsi community but in this wider mixed Hong Kong, this cosmopolitan Asian port city of Hong Kong that that they believed in and they were actually literally putting their lives on the line. I mean, that's really quite something. Several key Portuguese people did it as well and a friend who anybody from Club Lusitano will know very well, Anthony Correa, was incredibly helpful to me because his forebears were, of course, he had an, an uncle who was the Portuguese consul in Hong Kong during the war. And very marvellously, I mean, it's almost a Schindler's List sort of situation, not quite. He made sure, he was issuing passports, Portuguese passports, sort of stamp, 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 stamp by the day to enable anybody with the least little bit of claim to... Uh, make the dash to freedom and, well, relative freedom, relative safety in Macau. So there are all sorts of stories of heroism, but what really struck me when I got into it, so they don't know who's going to win, but they're putting their lives on the line for some notion of a Hong Kong community that transcends whether it's British or not. It happens that those are the guys in charge, but frankly, they've lost at the moment and they're on the other side of the world and it's all very embarrassing for the British. But here's an idea of Hong Kong that comes from this, what I call, the wider Eurasian community, the wider Eurasian identity of Hong Kong. And so then, in August 1945, you have three guys disguising themselves as fishermen. They smuggled themselves into Hong Kong, out of Macau, in August 45 over to the Stanley internment camp to pass on a message. These three guys had received a message from London that, you know, everyone should be ready to sort of reclaim Hong Kong with raising the flag and so on. These three guys were Roger Lobo, Eddie Gosano and Liang Yun Chang. Now, each of them had been doing dangerous things during the war and each of them were now, again, risking their lives to come over and deliver a message to the British in camp uh, to say, you know, let's raise the flag soonest. Um, and they were quite prepared to do that. Nobody, nobody they, they could have just said no. <laughs> there was no way to, to sort of force these people to do it, but they were doing it for, for their notion of Hong Kong. Now, we all know that already, of course, in camp, you know, Mr Gimson was ready with the flag also. So there was this sort of wider push to get Hong Kong moving again. And then you get Lawrence Kaduri coming in on a cargo plane piled with cash, to, to start rebuilding Hong Kong. So all these people from all these diverse communities are thinking, no, no, we still exist. We're glad it turned out the way it did, but either way, we're committed. So I found that really... Some of these stories still give me goosebumps. Vote in England there. During the Battle of Hong Kong, some of the men who fought 
were from the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps, so men who were trained, but who worked as clerks, accountants, and in other jobs. Number three machine gun company within those volunteers was nearly entirely made up of Eurasians who fought along Wong Nei Chung Gap. Many of those who survived that day became prisoners of war. Others escaped and became part of the underground resistance. Page one hundred and thirty-six of Fortune's Bazaar. I rather enjoyed the following couple of paragraphs. One hobby in particular would bring diverse peoples together from both Hong Kong Island and Kowloon: gardening. The Parsi hotelier Dorabji Noroji's glorious garden of flowers, fruit, and vegetables helped spawn a multicultural obsession in parts of Hong Kong. The Star Ferry was born when he lent his private boat to family and friends who wanted to cross the harbour to visit friends' gardens. Heavy demand required a second boat, which he called the Morning Star. Demand grew so that it became commercial in 1880, and he was running four boats by 1890, averaging 147 crossings a day. My thanks to Vodin England, the author of Fortune's Bazaar. The making of Hong Kong. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Some construction.